nature is abundantly sensational. So when I'm out in nature, I'm the happiest little being. I really am deeply happy there, quietly full of wonder. Like when I'm collecting, when I'm out there in the wild, I'm talking, I'm chatting and I'm singing to these plants. I'm telling them how much I love them. Oh, look at you, you know. Wow, that's, you're quite extraordinary and how lucky you are to be living in this place, you little thing. You know, oh, something's eaten the leaf of you. Oh, I'm, I'm weaving myself in there so that I can feel known, I suppose, so they know that I'm there. It's just, it's so nourishing. If people only knew that if you can still your mind and look closer, there is enormous amount of nourishment and healing to be had and that it's not something that you just take. You have to give something of yourself at the same time. You have to give your time and attention. And through giving something of yourself, you establish a connection. And that just is the truth that I found. So, yeah, it's about helping people establish a connection because then it's nourishing and healing and it's not just them that feel nourished and healed. You know, eventually that will have a cumulative effect on people's engagement with the world, with the earth, with nature. As a botanical artist, printmaker, fabric designer, amateur botanist, lover of natural history and an ecological activist, Deborah Wace sees herself as a plant advocate. Nature doesn't advocate for itself. We are a political animal, us humans, and we create these paradigms out there that control nature. And yet, nature desperately needs more advocates for itself because it doesn't have power in our system. It has natural power in abundance, but, you know, we try and control and subvert that. So I, I think really a theme that is deeply running through my life and my work is how to advocate for these species, and they're mainly plants and ecosystems that need a voice. And I'm more than happy to be that voice. It feels like the least I can do to give back for the immense pleasure that I derive from being out in nature. Spending time with Deborah is like being transported into a magical and wondrous world where plants and flowers come alive, offering up themselves to be adored, understood and appreciated, all the while giving us an opportunity to really see the natural world as it offers us restoration from our busy lives. I was lucky to have Deborah in my studio recently. We drove to a beautiful place halfway up Kananyi, Mount Wellington, the mountain that has a commanding presence over Tasmania's capital city, Hobart. So welcome to this space. Thank you, Helene. Thank you. It's delightful to be in here. I've invited you here today to talk about you and what you do and pretty much your life story. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> um, so 
I'd like you to take me back to when you were a child. What was happening for you in terms of your connection to nature and plants? When did you notice or find that connection happening? Well, I was born in Adelaide in South Australia and um, we moved to Canberra when my father got a tenured position at ANU in the Research School of Biogeography and Geomorphology. He was a botanist. And they bought a house in Barton. It had a big backyard and it had this huge big Urabi um, uh, big bluegum tree in the corner that the previous owners had bricked up. They'd made a brick wall around this tree and we were gobsmacked about this. And and much to my father's credit, dear, my dear dad, who used to be a Royal Marine, he first thing he did was take down the brick wall, use the bricks in a pathway, put up a flying fox and climbing ropes and a platform, you know, partway up this enormous tree. And, and I spent my childhood climbing and whizzing down the slide because I was the, the smallest member of the family. I'd get the longest run, <laughs> daredeviling and hiding up there from, you know, chores and people and, and thinking and collecting gum nuts that I could, you know, strategically um, throw down. <laughs> um, and just loving that connection with the tree and the canopy and being in this space where I had to haul myself up on ropes and I had to climb. And I suppose that's one place I have a, of a really strong memory is this space, which is in between zones, like a liminal space between sky and earth, where I could spend hours just doodling around in my own mind from the time that I was, you know, six or so until I left home when that would have been about 18. And yeah, the tree was a, a, a catch-all for me. But mum and dad owned shares in a ski lodge at Guthiga up in, near Mount Kosciuszko. And we'd go up there in winter and in summer, in winter cross-country skiing and in summer bushwalking through those beautiful, beautiful alpine meadows and the curly, colourful um, snow gums and the beautiful uh, smells of the the sort of minty smells of that bush up there and the insects um, and the gurgling, rushing streams. And I, I have deep abiding memories of close-up connection with this landscape and the botany and and lucky for me, my father, Nigel Wace, was a, a researcher and a curiosity researcher, really. And so I had this sounding board and I could say, oh, Dad, what's this plant? And why is it growing here like that? And why does it have those colours and those leaves look different? And what are these gum nuts from? And all those questions that a child can ask. And suddenly they'll come and answer. And that was a magic zone for me to start to learn about biogeography and geomorphology and the interconnection of, um, of all things. And what I, what I found myself doing as a child was collecting and collecting um, uh, seed pods and leaves and plants. So 
I had this little taxonomic collection in in um, subdivided shoe boxes and every little box that I could find that I could make smaller divisions in. And I, <laughs> I think I channeled some sort of incipient OCD really cleverly into this delight of a taxonomic collection that didn't have all the accompanying text to it, but just was a, a collection of form and delight of different forms. And I used to make mobiles. I used to make little creatures, little little individuals, you know, that might be gum made of gum nuts and leaves and twigs and and I used to make bird mobiles and they were graceful cranes with you know grevillea heads and little tiny gum nut eyes and hair and wings and tails and feet and long legs and and so my bedroom floor would be you know eyes and heads in one corner and and you know bodies and legs and then wings and different component parts of bodies that were all over my bedroom floor. So you, you had to sort of step in like a, a very careful, you know, step from here to there, from here to there, to go around this little making space. And and so as a child, I would be walking my neighbourhood and collecting. And I suppose I just osmotically took in this love of the variety of form and function of plants. And that's been an odd approach to the science of it, you know, sort of the backdoor approach. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have siblings? Uh, yes, a sister who's two years older, Sally, and a brother who's two years older, Tim. Okay. And so how did all of that childhood experience uh, and learning from your father carry on through to when you became independent from the family? And Well, I suppose some of those early um, makings that I did um, of these creatures I'm I suppose I'm a bit of a perfectionist so they were really quite lovely and um, well thought out I used some of them and my drawings as a, a portfolio to show to get into the degree course at Canberra School of Art and I wanted to go into the silver silversmithing and uh, class and I got accepted into that but I soon found out that it was all a bit too Germanic and stern and you know I was just going to be leaving one family scenario for a much sterner family scenario so I thought no 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 and I changed to printmaking um, which I love and I was so lucky to study under Jörg Schmeiser amazing Australian printmaker that sense of always looking closer at the form of plants or the form of things and being able to draw that and to work that into etching plates or whatever printmaking form I was doing you know I just kept on with that kept on looking it was seamless and and I've never stopped collecting. <laughs> it gives me so much joy. It's a it's a delightful meditative um, way to honour the plants in a way and mm-hmm. satisfy my curiosity and and look for difference and similarity and and really it's about the interconnection. I suppose it's been a, a lifelong study of interconnection of how I'm connected. Mm. So talk me through the collecting, like what's involved in, in the collecting part? What do you do? Well, the collecting that I've been doing for the last, you know, 30 years or so is more around plant pressings. So collecting um, individual specimens of plants or flowers or leaves or um, lichen and pressing those between paper um, under pressure, looking after that, make sure that there's no 
mould setting in, changing the papers, depending on the moisture content of the specimen, and and pressing for perfection, trying to press so that it's perfectly described. So what's involved in that is um, this meditative process of looking and attuning your eye and scanning. And so depending on what plants I'm looking for, like Living and collecting down at Loon River, which is where I lived for 20 years, this most beautiful landscape, a lot of what I was looking for were the smaller plants, yeah, the orchids, the, the fungis and the lichens, the, the drosseras, the, um, the small carnivorous plants or the irises. And you end up calibrating your vision for that section of ground which is you know maybe 20 centimeters or 10 centimeters even above ground and it's almost like to the exclusion of all others you Mm. get this this x-ray vision um that'll take you right to that plant if it's there Mm. and yeah i it's it's a really nice zone to be in because you're looking intensely you're really engaged and yet it's sort of you're skimming over the the broader scape and looking right down. And in the button grass, um, which is a, a term for a whole mosaic of plant species, it's such a resilient, amazing uh, groundwork of plants that in summer is totally dry and crisp and in winter it's absolutely boggy and, and peaty and, and uh, filled with water and frozen sometimes so the plants are just super resilient and sometimes they're tiny tiny plants Mm. and often they are very old ancient plant forms so like like club moss you know which was dinosaur food unchanged since then and that's like zoom that takes you right Mm. into that portal of ah well i could be here in this you know loon river is a jurassic landscape Mm where there were megafauna and there were uh, dinosaurs and there were volcanoes and it's still, you can trace that through the mineral content in the ground and the agates and the fossilised tree ferns and I just love that, that Mm. I'm here now but equally I could be, you know, I could find that same plant maybe in a different size scale back in the Jurassic period. Mm. Do you feel like sometimes you're a scientist? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I do feel that. I do love the, the way that I can engage with science through art mm. and through my practice. I mean, I do have a, a degree in visual arts in printmaking. I don't have a degree in science, but I do have a curious mind and I do read a lot and I, I think about interconnection and interrelationship. So in that way, yeah, I would be a scientist, but I'm, you know, I... I haven't done the the doctorate to make it Mm. so. Um, But there's some ways now that I'm really happily being able to mix science and art. And one of those is the orchid conservation project at the Botanical Gardens here in Hobart, where there is a orchid conservation project being run by Nigel Schwartz and Magali Wright, and it's just fabulous. Um, it's got some real scientists involved, but it's also got a volunteer program, which I'm part of. And I get to look much more closely at these orchid species, a lot of the ones that I'm also working with artistically, 
and we um, we look for these species in the field. We collect some if there if there's enough. We we, we collect little bits of the root so we can isolate the correct mycorrhizae fungus that that orchid needs to germinate. And we germinate, we, we grow on that fungus, we um, collect the seeds, we, there's all sorts of processes, and then we meet, we marry the seed with the fungus in agar solutions and grow them on, hoping to have the right mycorrhizae relationship. And it's, you know, it's been a lot of hit and miss, but it's gradually becoming much more finely tuned. And we get to then pick out of that agar the first sprouts of the orchids and grow them on and on and on until that critically endangered or very threatened orchid is growing happily in pots um, in the back of the botanical gardens and we can reintroduce them to the wild. Mm -hmm. And I find that whole process so satisfying and I get to I get to be a scientist and mm -hmm. that's... Yeah, that's very. It's very nourishing for my art practice. What did your father think of your career path and, um, you know, your art practice and how are you? Um, well, my father died sixteen years ago, unfortunately. My mother's still alive, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, Dad, Dad really understood my love of the small things and the, that love of looking closely you know the microscope the drawing the 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 questioning and the delight of natural forms he had all of that in abundance um he channeled it into a much more academic um uh route but he was also he had his he had this wide-ranging mind you know to to be curious about things and to wonder about this and that and uh, a lot of his curiosity research that was funded in the in the 70s and 80s, just you couldn't get funding for it now because there's no direct application and there's no money to be made out of it and academics are now so under the pump to make everything pay that a lot of that incidental curiosity and looking mm. just gets trodden on mm. and doesn't doesn't get watered and so... Yeah, often there's some really fine concepts and ideas that don't get explored because of that. Mm. And I do think that's a real shame in this modern paradigm where everything's driven by the dollar. But I think he understood my desire to live remotely and to be surrounded by this landscape. I think he was always worried about how I could turn that into a viable um, uh, existence. Um, but then so was I. <laughs> Would you say that it was your father, what your father did, inspired you to, to do what you do now? Or is that part of the inspiration? Oh, I think it's a, a foundational part, mm. yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, I always did feel a, a real curiosity and I took it much more in terms of art. Um, I didn't feel like I had the intellectual rigour to study science at university I really wanted to take my make my artwork take me there, and so I'm very happy that it's coming around to be much more scientifically based now. And my mother also taught me heaps about food and cooking, and you know those sort of more social skills. But I do remember when I found some of my father's plant pressings from his escapades all around the world, and um, plant collections from Tristan da Cunha and Gough Island that he made in the fifties as part of the Gough Island Scientific Survey. And he let me take some of these extras that he had and 
and make a plant pressing arrangement and and that was one of the first that I did and I just loved the way that you create the composition but the plants have their in, integrity of their character that they express through their form and very quirky characters these plants they all have such a different expression and so yeah I would I just went on and on and did lots of uh, made lots of arrangements and then started making the frames and realized that actually there's limitations because you don't want to just collect and collect so then I started thinking about the digitizing of it and how to make this into a more viable artistic expression and a product that I could use as a as a to make a living from yeah do you describe or, or your way of seeing and being in the world I feel like it must be quite different to a lot of people because you I don't know like it's almost like you really feel a part of everything and almost you feel you are one you know this interconnectedness and well, I suppose if I was to say if some words about it, one of them would be sensational. Not in that word, not in that sense that it's over the top, but that it's full of sensation. Like even sitting with you now here, I'm so glad the door's open because all the little birds, you know, they're there and they're flitting about on these, the bark and the limbs of these twigs and the breeze. That's when I'm out there in the world. It's all of those things. It's it's how that breeze is on my skin. It's the smells of these plants and flowers. And the what is the bird life? What's that lizard doing? You know, oh, there's a butterfly. You know, the, the ways that it's a whole ecosystem. It's never just the one thing. I may be looking for a particular plant in itself, but in the looking I come across the multitude of other plants that are part of that that closely defined ecosystem and that is a whole enmeshed um, gathering of multitudes of species. It's not just one plant in isolation, it never is unless it's some sort of hydroponic system, you know, and then that's carefully controlled and has to be very, very arduous really. You know, you go out in nature and nature is abundantly sensational. So when I'm out in nature, I'm the happiest little bean. I really am deeply happy there, quietly mm. full of wonder. And it's very restorative and it creates this opening and this space for me to think more deeply about my interconnection and about my impact and about what I can bring to this you know, when I think about my impact, it's both do I have a detrimental impact? Can I have a positive impact on helping these plant species or this ecosystem? Because, you know, nature doesn't advocate for itself. We are a political animal, us humans, and we create these paradigms out there that control nature. And yet nature desperately needs more advocates for itself because it doesn't have power 
in our system. It has natural power in abundance, but you know we try and control and subvert that. So I I think really a theme that is deeply running through my life and my work is how to advocate for these species, and they're mainly plants and ecosystems that need a voice. And I'm more than happy to be that voice. It feels like the least I can do to give back for the immense pleasure that I derive from being out in nature. I love my part in it and I want to give back and I want to show these plants in a way to people that will make them think in that way of going, yeah, these little plants have an absolute right to exist in the world just like I do without interference to be have a nourishing life. And if the work that I'm doing, which is now, um, you know, 30 years of work in this sort of vein, now I'm finessing it and I'm so happy to be doing that now mm. that it's come around to this sense of agency in advocating for our historical and cultural record of herbarium specimen collections and and the work that I'm doing printing gorgeous flora of Tasmania onto fabrics and silks and wallpapers so that people can have a portal into that love of place and they may not be able to get out there physically but I can take them there with um, the beauty of the work that I do and through having it in their life or on their body they can then start to own that story as well and tell that story and um, hopefully feel a greater sense of connection and indebtedness to the natural world. Mm, Beautiful. it been you know living your life as an artist doing what you love most yeah tell me about how you've journeyed that throughout your life and what's it looked like at times (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's this it's the highs and lows of following your passion and Mm. delight in the process and and trying to give it your all and be do as well as you can in your expression of it. And um, so there's all this abundance there. And on the other hand, it's like, well, actually, you know, there's, there's um, all these costs associated with life and, you know, and there's rent and there's anything. So that doesn't always meet, doesn't always mesh. And, you know, you've got to do different, different jobs to to earn the money to make that happen and that's you know that's just as it is and there's lots of different work that I've done over the years that has nothing to do with making art but it funds it but I also have been very adept in my life at living frugally Um, so everything goes into my artwork really everything and that just seems right because I'm, I'm aiming high. I haven't got a small vision for it. I've got a big vision for it. And the more I learn in life along the way, 
the more I am finding that I'm finding the abundance to put into that work into that you know the, the completing of that vision and the bringing forward it and loving the journey and not being afraid of it not being afraid that um, you know that I might be spending all of my earnings or all of my savings on this because actually that's what I want to be doing I want to be doing that and it's going to be taking me into a place where I'm earning better for that. So, you know, and that's true. That's what's happening. So, mm. you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be afraid and I don't want to be not doing what I'm, what I've trained myself my whole life to do, not doing what these plants are asking me to do. So I just let go and give into it really. <laughs> and always keep a studio space, you know, even when I've been house sitting and, and haven't had anywhere to live, I've always kept a studio. And, right. Um, that's, I suppose it's just about mm. priorities, really. Because you, yeah, like you were talking about house-sitting and going from house to house. So it, there has been a period of times where it's hasn't been at all secure, like as secure as you... Yeah, there could. was um, 10 years ago, after 20 years living at Loon River with, with my my husband Laurie and my uh, two darling kids and uh, they were born there um, and my sister-in-law and, and brother-in-law on the same land down there um, we separated and I moved away and there was all sorts of circumstances around that and it was it was big and hugely cathartic and you know going from a remote isolated wilderness beautiful place to come and live in town and really fueled by a, a desire to change, to, to bring this big thing out of me, feeling like I have a big job of work to do and artistic expression and to learn how to earn from that and to learn how to bring it forward in a really um, sophisticated manner that I couldn't see how to like the, the foundational work of collecting and the, the the love of living there was, I never wanted to leave that. But in the end, um, I felt like I had to change so much and I had to find ways that were closer at hand in a city for all of that, the print production, all of the um, means of getting this, my work to a larger audience. So yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't anticipated that would be the outcome. Um, and, you know, there was all sorts of matters of the heart too. But um, also bringing forward this work meant that I stepped out of a very secure place that we had built there over 20 years into nothing with no means, <sighs> which was terrifying. It was so terrifying. And I, I did feel lost for a, a while. Um, but always, and actually I moved to here, very near this place where we're recording, um, to live in, in a friend's little cabin in the backyard. And it was the proximity to nature, the immediate step outside into nature that was that helped me get through that hard time. And yeah, house sitting, you know, trying to look for accommodation that wasn't expensive and then rentals and places for the kids to... Um, so the kids could come up and go to school and 
pulling all this together and lots of different jobs to make ends meet. and Yeah, but all the time, all the time, pushing forward this vision for this artwork that I, I wanted to express and it's it's just a part of me. So, yeah, I look back now and it's easy to, to talk about mm. it. It wasn't easy to experience it. Mm. But all the time there was a lot of a lot of love there and a knowledge that the the landscape that sustained my arts practice at Loon River is still sustaining it and I'm bringing that forward in all sorts of ways for people all around the world to enjoy and to care about and to want to nurture and look after and to be curious about and to educate themselves about and the stories that accompany these plants they're fascinating so it's not diff- it's not a difficult choice for me to choose that the the difficulty was learning how to live in the world in the city and and you know alone and and then to you know to make a space and find the means to bring the kids up and mm. but you know I have a very loving um friendship now with my ex and, and my daughter lives back down there and my son lives with me and and my um my family down there, my sister-in-law, you know, she's just written this amazing book, The Oyster Girl, that brings us into that country. And there's there's deep and abiding connection there, which didn't have to be severed. It just just needed to be recalibrated. And you know, there's room there's room for growth. There's always room for growth. Mm. Mm. Loon River is how far away from Hobart? So Loon River is an hour and a half's drive south of Hobart. It's nearly as far south as you can go towards Cockle Creek and Research Bay. And, uh, yeah, we lived on 110 acres there on the banks of the Loon. Really beautiful. When you say there was something big that needed to come out of you, what what is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, okay, so... When I first moved to Tasmania on a bike after my finishing my degree in Canberra, I came to Tassie with a girlfriend on a bicycle and decided that, yeah, this is where I'd like to live. And um, lived in Hobart and met up with um, two women, Rachel Hoare and Melanie Shanahan. And together we started this group called Aramaida, which is an a cappella group. This is in 88, 89, 88 started this group original songs around sense of place and um, social justice issues and we sang we wrote a lot of our songs we also sang many songs of Sweet Honey in the Rock Miriam McCabe um, songs about Nelson Mandela you know that was all fomenting at the time all this uh real social justice inequity that we were seeing coming out of South Africa and and beginning to understand more about what was happening in our own country here um, in Aboriginal Australia. And we made a difference in the scene. We actually created something very beautiful with Aramaida. Um, you know, three and four part vocal harmonies and Harmony is the word. It's it's an extraordinary space to be in when you're offering vocally and you're listening so intently and you're 
fitting within this musical thread, all three or four of us. Uh, it's just so nourishing. It's you, You're so alive and you're also channeling. And when you're doing that in... When, you, when you're ready and you're doing that in performance and you can feel the circle connecting through the room coming back to you, everyone is held and wrapped there. There's an emotional connection that charges the whole space. It's incredible. It's the best thing. <laughs> and so, yeah, we created this, this beautiful big thing and we took off to Sydney thinking that we could make it in Sydney and, and no idea how to do that. <laughs> and it was so intense. We were so intense. I think we, were, we didn't have a lot of perspective on how to go about it sensibly and Rach and Melanie were a couple and I was just, you know, on my own and I did feel very lonely in Sydney. And, yeah, it came a bit of a crisis. Um, this is after some years from Tasmania and my partner came over Laurie and he said well you know he's going back and you're welcome to come back and we can build a place down at Loon and and I did that practical side of me of working with my hands and building and wanting to actually hold in my hands what I was doing rather than the ephemeral nature of singing where where you're creating it and it's leaving you it's going Mm. out of you and it's it's gone. It's mm. there. It's it's someone's experiencing it. You're experiencing it, but you cannot hold it. Mm. That was so beautiful, but so... Uh, in some way, I just needed to ground myself, I think. And um, anyway, I decided to leave the group and move down to Loon River, and I did, and it was... It was uh, very cathartic again. <laughs> I seem to have these times in my life that are big. And that was a big thing. Aramaida was a big thing and it showed me the capacity we have for generating beauty and uh, meaning and connection through art and in this case through music and song. Absolutely deeply known within me. Um, you know, singing for Nelson Mandela on the steps of the Sydney Opera House in front of 40,000 people, seeing the tears streaming down his face when he realised the love and connection of this Australian crowd, feeling the waves of love and emotion coming from this crowd just, you know, battering into me. Amazing feeling of Mm. the power of song, the power of song to express an idea, a simple or a complex idea, and the way that other people can gain access to that same expression through connection through song and music. Uh, Extraordinary experience, that one, amongst many others of singing to and with an audience. So that's never left me. And, and, you know, 20 years of living down at Loon River, of growing a huge garden on the button grass plain and you know, turning this soil into rich, verdant green and giving birth to my two babies, home births down there in the wild. Mm-hmm. I had to get the phone on to even, to even have a home birth. <laughs> and looking out every day at this wondrous landscape, looking onto World Heritage and looking across the river and the the wind and the wildness of it and writing songs and singing and teaching and mosaics and collecting all of this 
I think I realised at one point that I I had more to do. I had more to give. And I didn't know how to do it from such a remote location and with little means that I had to get out there and earn the means to be able to produce something at a bigger level. And I, it was hard to articulate, but in the end it became this real um, fault line in me or some uh, some crack opened and I just had to acknowledge that I wanted to do this big thing, whatever that was. And, you know, we lived in this beautiful place, but just a few kilometres down the road was the this landscape that was under threat. Well, a lot of the landscape is under threat there. There's an enormous amount of logging extraction going out of these southern forests. Beautiful, beautiful old growth, pristine forests that are being cut down and trucked out every day and the grief that you hold and that is held in the community that's unexpressed that may be unacknowledged but every day you see it going past every night you hear another 10 trucks go past it's like it's it can't be endless you know these are forests that I love these are whole communities of trees and moss and plants that I love and then oh oh that's gone it's just gone and it's ravaged. So when the type locality of um, Research Bay and the Northeast Peninsula, when we found out that it was going to be sold and roaded and developed and logged, as a community we rose up to say, okay, looks like we've this is a, campaign, a community campaign and some of us have been involved in campaigns before and it was like, oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> you know your mortgage years of your life in a campaign like mm. this. So the Research Bay um, campaign, I was very much a part of that, along with my whole Far South community, well, along with many members of the Far South community. Really eclectic, interesting bunch of people. We drove this campaign to help protect this type locality. And a type locality is where... The first plants were collected and described that described that species or, or the locality is where all of those plants were collected. And um, yeah, there's a whole bigger story to go into there. But that also made me aware that the artwork that I was doing, the plant collecting, the large scale etchings of Tasmanian orchids were linked into a deeper, deeper vein of history and culture that I found irresistible. The the writings about it, the characters involved, the naturalists and plant collectors, the um, the ethnographic record that the anthropologists had had made in these early these early collections, um, talked of a, a community cult, a, a community camp life culture of the Lilaquani people, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people of that area, that made it come alive to me in a way that I hadn't known. I hadn't I hadn't put the two together so much. I'd always known that I was on land that Aboriginal people had lived on and walked through and had loved and feasted on and had their own babies on and and all but fighting to protect this landscape and the the depth of historical narrative that ran with it 
made me feel like, oh, actually the work I'm doing shows me that I'm part of this narrative and as I'm a part of this narrative, I've got a responsibility to bring that about in a in a way that really um, brings my best to it. And so I can remember sitting in my garden in Loon, this big garden, sitting there thinking, I wonder if I could find, how on earth could I get over to the herbarium collections of Europe to see these plants that they collected, to see these, the, the specimen collection and the historical notes and to put myself right in that, in that sort of story, even though I know that I'm in it because I'm working on this side of it, actually to feel immersed in it over there and to get all the, the as many of the other nuances, political and cultural nuances, that are together with this story of the early French collection of the botanical record from Research Bay. If I'm fighting for it, I actually want to take that story further. And I can do that. I know I've got the intellectual capacity and the artistic capacity to do it. I didn't have the financial capacity, but but I can remember sitting there thinking, how would I do that? How hmm. could I? And it was a dream. It didn't I didn't stop it because I couldn't see how to do it. I just kept that as a as a dream to think on and you know, a bit of a major goal for me really. And, you know, um, lo and behold, 10 years later, I found myself applying for a Churchill Fellowship to do exactly that. And I had finessed my goal. I had, I had lived it. I had done the work necessary to know that actually I'm, I'm a real part of this story and I can bring something big to it and I've got a lot to offer and I want to... I want to show these collections in a new way and bring them forward in a new way for fabric and, and wall coverings and story and song. And so I plucked up my courage and I applied. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got it. <laughs> oh, happy day. <laughs> happy day. <laughs> oh, that's a story too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you got it and you went. Yeah. I went and you were. I went to uh, to study the early French botanical record from um, the Dontecaster expedition and the, and uh, a few other expeditions in herbarium collections in Europe, specifically in Florence in the Webb Herbarium, um, and in Jardin de Plantes in Paris, um, Natural History Museum, and in Kew Gardens, and many other things besides. And I'd never travelled overseas as an adult. It was terrifying. I was really quite wow. petrified. Um, you know, but it was just that stepping up. And, and you know, that's where you learn. It's the hard bits that you mm. learn through. I look back on these hard experiences or the, what that seemed hard at the time. They were just really challenging, taking me out of my comfort, comfort mm. zone. And depending on how emotionally charged they were, you know, I had to take myself through that journey mm. but in the end I come out learning a lot about myself and learning of my capacity and knowing that I have immense capacity so much more than I would give myself credit for in the beginning and so 
when you do that enough times, it's like I trust that now. It's like, yeah, this is this is still scary, and I'm gonna do it. Mm-hmm. And the big, you know, like what you're working on now, the, the Australia Council grant. Uh, the project is called the Sartorial Naturalist. Sartorial being how you dress, how you wear, what you dress in, and um, the naturalist being a, a collector of. Um, specimens. So I am the sartorial naturalist. I'm producing these beautiful works of art onto fabric and wall coverings. I think the fact that um, it's a creative collaborative project that is working across all age levels, across huge range of skill levels, people who are at the heights of their career in cinematography, in post-production, like Michael Gissing, post-production of um, recording and colour grading and um, um, editing documentaries and in production with Lara Van Ray. And I wanted to bring in a young emerging composer, composer called um, Alicia Casey Winter, who I'd worked with before in one of the choirs that I was running. And together with a um, a young player, um, Oyimbra, who plays saxophone and um, clarinet beautifully, and another friend of mine, Lucy, Lucy Wilson, who plays cello. So we have the original musical composition and score to go underneath this short film, a 10 to 12 minute showreel film, um, with Palawa dancer, Tasmanian Aboriginal dancer, Sinsa Mansell, who is extraordinary in her how she exemplifies country and she just she is country as she is dancing. And also Felicity Bott, who is a, a Tasmanian um, dancer who is doing really interesting work. So, you know, that's quite a lot of people. It's a it's a big project and we have these two grants, and who knew that two grants wouldn't be enough to do a, a film? Filmmaking is very expensive, and I'm learning so much about filmmaking. Anyway, we're trimming the budget left, right and centre, mm-hmm. and and I'm in this process now of um, bringing forward new designs for fabric um, and sending off the new designs for strike off and final print run to have these, you know, four-metre swathes of silk designed with the flora of Tasmania in many different forms, to be filmed underwater at the highest resolution, being danced with and interacted with, and the ripple effect of light underwater in a completely light-controlled, dark, uh, controlled but well-lit environment, and and interspersing these underwater elements with above-ground um, shooting of the filming of the sartorial naturalist which is me in beautiful costume of my um of my creations um with nicole ottry who's who'll make that and also um selena who is making the um the swimming suits for the models so there'll be above ground dancing on country collecting showing basically showing this dreamscape that i inhabited dreaming up how I was going to bring this project to the world. And now I'm going to be filming it and featuring in the story as it as it's filmed. It's amazing to me the power of your own imagination to bring forward something and, you know, it may morph and change over time. But now I find myself in this amazing situation where I'm living what I was dreaming and 
I'm so grateful and so happy to live this dream, to dream it up and, you know, years later to find myself living that dream, filming that dream so that other people can actually see the expression of it. And it won't be a documentary type. It's much more of a imaginary land and a dreamscape, but it's essentially me walking through the landscape, collecting and imagining the possibilities of these beautiful plants that I'm pressing being transformed into fabric mm-hmm. and have a larger life out there in the world. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's if there's anything I want to say to people who are in involved in an artistic escapade is dream it up big, make it real, love it to bits and keep doing the work because if you keep true to that dream and flesh it out, you'll find yourself doing extraordinary things. And yeah, I, I really feel so, so lucky to be doing this work that is both intensely Um, satisfying for me and also has a role in terms of plant advocacy for conservation and um, biodiversity outcomes that to help people understand more about the huge interconnection of species and why we need to care more what's at stake if we don't and this fabric has um, your prints on yes yes it's Mm. silk uh, silk chamoose like a satin silk in by and large for this film shoot and it has many different um, designs on it of the from the flora of Tasmania from my um, digitised herbarium. When COVID struck, I actually just fully invested in myself with with the help of an investor and digitised my entire herbarium, which is considerable. It was about eight days' work at high resolution to photograph my plant specimens that have been pressed over years across orchid button grass plants or many many plants on the button grass plains across seaweed across fungi across lichen and fern so and tree leaves so it's a considerable element library now that i'm using to to put onto into digital design at many different scales with all sorts of different uh, mixtures of these plants to bring people in closer because with with the plant specimens at that's uh, digitized at that resolution I can go deep 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 into it um, and I suppose that's that's mm. what I love to do is to make it more visible in that way and this show reel this you know 10 to 12 minute show reel will be a film that is an entry point for people to the flora of Tasmania and to the possibilities for contemporary design onto fabric that also has a story that is science and art mixed and also talks about important topics around plant conservation and habitat conservation and what we need to do to educate public and policy makers of how to protect these fragile ecosystems because they are interconnected and if we lose one we lose more than one. We we often lose more. When you say take the next step is to take your designs to the to the world stage, yeah. And by doing that, you you want those stories to to become known around the world because 
the more people know about the story, the more likely there is of protection. Yeah, it definitely is. It's about it's about caring deeper and in a very practical way that people who may not ever have access to the button grass plains, for instance, or to landscape that is part of Tasmania, will get to know about it more, about the people that first collected these plants and what drove them to do that and what these plants represent. And the story of botanists and naturalists, these explorers, you know, that I feel a real affinity with. I can have an impact through the artwork that I do. I can put these designs at the most sophisticated, highest level that I can do out into the world so that people can um, purchase these fabrics, put them on their on their walls. I've now found a completely um, internationally certified production um, f- textile production system that is the lowest wastage and impact upon the environment in both the the textile manufacturing and the printing process so I'm over the moon about that because that fits entirely with mm. my my ethic and my values and I'm really happy to be pivoting all of my artwork onto this um, in the coming in the coming months so that's you know that's just that's great because um, the production of textiles is a hugely um, wasteful and resource intense and polluting industry so I don't want to be contributing to that I want to be creating high value in terms of the educative model for what goes behind the visual. So when people want that orchid on that blouse or that that length of fabric to be made into something, along with that, they also get the story. And that story is pretty interesting, you know, and, and if they love it that much, then that story is theirs for them to tell. So then the effect is compounded wherever it goes from me to the, what's that expression, from me to the ear of God or something. Mm. I'd like you to tell me about the intimacy that you have for these plants that you collect and draw and then put on fabric and so on. Like, Oh, well, it is an intimacy. It, it, I feel very privileged, really, to have such access to these plants. Um, so in my studio down at Loon, collecting with permissions on private land, always with permissions, especially because some of the plants I was collecting, I was collecting to draw and to do prints from were native orchids. Um, I was really aware that they're, they're precious and, um, and I needed to know their status in terms of their, their rarity. Um, but for instance, you know, I could collect a specimen and bring it home straight away and put it under the microscope and zoom in on the sexual parts of the flower which is what a flower is you know it's it's the plant's sexual organs and and they're just outrageously gorgeous the mirroring of form to human form is uh, you know um, unmissable the way that they are so finely tuned to their ecological niche and how they, especially the orchids, how they have attuned, have um, evolved to attract their pollinating species. It's this incredible dance over millennia and captured under the microscope is 
it's it's like this just held in this moment of going ooh la la look at you look at how you have described your form to look like the insect that would come to pollinate you so you look like this beetled hairy back of a wasp for instance and provide this runway strip for the male wasp to land in the flower and to to try and um, to think thinking that it's a female wasp and, and to fly away and mate on the wing well it's not going to happen with a flower it might try and fly away but it's not going to carry the flower with it and so there's this tussle and this um, pollination that will happen from one flower to the other as the male wasp goes from flower to flower looking for a mate and the orchid is just there going yes here I am here I am pollinate me and then and then you know the other quandary to that is there's all these female wasps out there going hello hello I'm waiting where are you you know and there's this strange sort of cryptic conversation between species which is quite incredible not just with the pollinating species but with the mycorrhizae fungus under the soil it's amazing in fact that we actually ever get to see any native orchids the chances of an orchid seed um, blowing in the wind falling onto the ground in a place where there is the right humidity the right soil the correct mycorrhizae fungus in that soil is millions to one the chance that it would that it would fall there, that it may even germinate, and that even though it germinates, the 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 chance that the correct um, species of insect to pollinate that plant is so millions to one that 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 insect is there. But just the chances that that orchid would be there at the right time it just blows my mind, and and it also makes me concerned because now with the, the climate emergency that is evolving that we're living in, and it really is a dire emergency we need to wake up to, what's happening is there's there's slippage across all many ecological niches, not just for orchids, but for many, many, possibly all things. There's slippages happening. So in localised environments, you'll find that um, that orchid species may flower later because it's drier it's getting drier and drier every year and it might be getting so dry that that pollinating insect species has to become sexually mature earlier and um and mate earlier and so there, there's there could be this two or three weeks slippage where they can't meet the orchid can't get pollinated because the insect isn't out there ready and so what happens then? You know, millennia of evolution is undone through this climate emergency. And that's just one illustration of it. That, that is happening with phytoplankton. It's happening with the, the, the shell structure of the, the calcium in the shells. You know, cataclysmic waves of um, um, dissolution and, and where where structures aren't meshing as they normally would, that's a real concern. That's part of this story, you know. There's, it's a big idea to articulate, but I think we need to grapple with it. And with that comes an understanding that we're not outside of these systems. We are so deeply inside them. 
And we need to own our responsibility for how we act within them and we need to care for all the things, all the things, even the ones that are ugly or that don't serve us. We actually need to serve them. We need to know that we're not separate and um, and to be active in what we can do to help mm. mitigate this situation now. Really now, we need to do this. It's urgent. How does it feel to have such an intimate, you know, relationship with these um, living things and to know that some are going extinct and will be and how do you um, process that within yourself without getting too depressed about it or Mm. do you know what I mean like because it it can kind of be all-consuming when you really think about it yeah yeah it can be it can be it is really sad Um, um, but really I can only do what I can do and I can do a lot, you know. I can, I can do a lot. I'm fiercely political. I'm really brave. I'm not, I'm not afraid to speak about this and to, to speak up for these plants. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm. Uh, they've got me in their thrall. I'm somehow um, an advocate for them, and that makes me really happy. But like I was describing this orchid under a microscope, you know. Mm. It's under that microscope so that I can draw it. I can draw it and scale it up into an image that I can then work up onto a dry point plate and ink up and press in my press. And then I have an image that I can do all sorts of things. There's so many layers to the artistic practice. But really in looking at it closely and really looking at it closely, it's a. it lets me in. I come to a, an understanding of it that it's in my hand. I can draw that plant now when it's not there. I know it, and I know it in a very intimate way. Um, And so that's both comforting and useful. It's that plant is now known by a human that has some sort of agency to help it, and that's how I see what I'm doing. If that's a plant that is in danger, then that's that's pretty important. Mm. If my voice can help in some way I'm pretty stoked about that you know I'd, I'd love to be able to help in that way so yeah it's a it's it's both about bringing beauty into the world in another form you know the plant does it effortlessly in its own that is its expression of itself the artwork that I make is an expression of myself the fabrics that I can create are an expression that someone else can use as an expression of themselves and with that fabric, with that um, art that is on that fabric or the wallpaper, then there's the opportunity to tell a story and to tell a story of a deeper connection. And, yeah, there's it's sort of sneaky in a way because it's not necessarily their story. They didn't find it or make it, but they can tell it. Mm. And in telling it it actually evokes an emotional response in you and that's what I'm after. Mm. I'm after people's emotional response to these plants themselves and to the state that they're in. Mm. And the ripple effect of that, I can't control the ripple effect of that. I just want it. 
I want these stories to get out there so people go, oh, look, I didn't know that before. Now I'm going to be more careful. Look mm. at where I'm treading. Am I treading on an or am I what am I treading on? Look at that lichen. Ah, oh, just just so that we wake up more to the wonders of the natural world. It just it's so nourishing. If people only knew that if you can still your mind and look closer, there is enormous amount of nourishment and healing to be had and that it's not something that you just take. You have to give something of yourself at the same time. You have to give your time and attention. And through giving something of yourself, you establish a connection. And that just is the truth that I found. So, yeah, it's about helping people establish a connection because then it's nourishing and healing and it's not just them that feel nourished and healed. You know, eventually that will have a cumulative effect on people's engagement with the world, with the earth, with nature. Mm. So what are you giving when you're out there? Like what's, what is it that you're, as you're, you know, mm. experiencing what it, the, the nature and the plants are giving you, what, what is it that you're offering? Well, that's that certain type of intimacy that, <laughs> that comes with singing. Like when I'm collecting... When I'm out there in the wild, I'm, I'm talking, I'm chatting, and I'm mm. singing to these plants. I'm telling them how much I love them. Oh, look at you, you know. Wow, that's you're quite extraordinary, and how lucky you are to be living in this place, you little thing. You know, oh, something's eaten the leaf of you. Oh, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm weaving myself in there so that I can feel known I suppose so they know that I'm there touching them letting them know that I'm there and that even if even if I may be collecting one or two I'm not um, I'm not out there to hurt them I'm very careful where I'm treading um, and those one or two that I'm collecting they are destined for some some other expression so I sing songs to the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I revel in it. I, I, I talk to nature. It talks back to me. I feel well held in it. And I, yeah, I mean, I know some people think you're crazy for, for that, but I don't think it's crazy at all. It's, um, it's full of humour for me. It's full of delight and wonder. It's an open-hearted space where I'm grateful for the chance to immerse like this and to, that I can have my eyes opened wide and looking deeper because it's in that looking deeper that I see things about myself more and my path and what I can offer. And, and I'm totally up for being uh, an agent for these plant species out there totally I love it <laughs> has, has this relationship this really intimate relationship helped with your mental wellness and overall well-being do you think oh yeah all the time mm. all the time it's a it's a different type of meditative space that I find myself in when I'm out walking and botanizing not even collecting just looking you know it's like I'm I'm 
I'm looking with a childlike mind. It's not busy. It's not, I'm not thinking about all the deadlines, you know. There's so many deadlines at the moment. And, you know, I find myself, you see a friend and they say, how are you going? I'm going, oh, I'm really flat out. But I'm loving it. Mm. And when I find myself going, oh, yeah, I'm so busy, I always add now, but I'm flourishing and I'm flourishing. I've got this opportunity and this privilege of having access to these plants and I, I want to I wanna shine, really, really do a beautiful thing in the world and so I'm just doing that. <laughs> and now, you know, look out for a woman over 50. <laughs> What's the expression? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm fully committed to, to this now and I realise that I bring a depth of um, skill and a depth of capacity. The ways that my artwork helps my mental health are immeasurable. The drawing, the fine attention to detail, the, the, the no mind space, you know, when I'm there, when I'm drawing, when I'm printing, the whole act of printing, printmaking, with dry point and monoprint, because I, I teach it as well. And I tell all my students, I say, look out for those little moments of flow. Here one comes. It's coming now, you know. When you're, when you're lifting up the paper off the bed of the press, off the print, you don't know what's there. It's back to front, upside down. Suddenly, time stands still and moves very slowly and you see what you've just created. You've just created something. You've pulled it out of yourself. It's a new skill. It's entirely um, delightful. And now, you know, working with these high-resolution digital images, oh, my God, it's so lush. It's like, oh, scale it up, 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 up. I'm just going deeper into this plant or this flower. Mm. And, and I can see the, at a cell level what's going on. It's fascinating. It's, I'm really mesmerised by it. And, um, you know, that's, that's a delightful compensation for other hard hours at the mm. computer just going, oh, what am I doing? Oh, no, admin. Oh, oh no. Or other hard bits of life, you know. Mm. There's, a, there's a balance when you invite in the beauty and really look deeper into the beauty of nature mm. and find those interconnection points. That's the gift that you can give yourself and it's right there in front of us, all of us. Mm. I remember a friend telling me a story and he had, he had a tear in his eye when he told me and it it's sunk deep into me. He said he was involved with the Dalai Lama and the um, was there often when the Dalai Lama was giving endless, endless meetings. And, he, you know, it's exhausting. It must be exhausting. And even though he's such a highly evolved human, he said at one point he was obviously flagging after days and days of this and he saw His Holiness... In between, there was a brief hiatus between the next meeting and he saw him reach out with his eyes closed. He just reached out and held the only living thing in mm. the room, which was a pot plant. And he, he held a leaf gently between his thumb and his finger. And that was the portal for recharge. That was the one place in that whole room, in that whole sky tower office block, that had the potential for a recharge into nature. And it makes so much sense to me. And, and I love the beauty of that imagery. 
of even his holiness needs the recharge when he's giving, giving, giving. And it's a simple potted plant, indoor plant, that could give that to him. Something made of nature. So, mm. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's nature that's the recharge. Hmm. I'm bringing out into the world what I really feel I can do and in this one precious life I want to do all that I can do and I suppose that's what I had to own up to and go, no, it's not anyone else that needs to change, Deb, it's you. And that was terrifying. <laughs> oh. uh, but now I've learnt through that process and I've learnt so much. Mm. And it's through that hard times often that, or that suffering, whatever, that we learn who we are and what we bring. Mm. Yeah. And self-forgiveness is always a good thing, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's sometimes it rears its head and when... When other stresses happen, you go straight back into that sort of trauma space or that mm. stressful space. And and I can, you know, it's easy to have that rod to beat myself up with. It's right there if I want to pick it up mm. and I just choose not to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't resonate out there in the world in a, in a productive way. It's much better if I'm loving mm. my life and living it well and, and of service to humanity in some way. Mm. You know, I don't want to be a selfish individual so um but at times I have been and at times that was all I knew how to do so Mm. you know we learn and we change and we get better at being a a a better human (laughs) Mm. yeah it's it's sort of like evolving isn't it like you can't really expect to be perfect all the way through you know, how do you become, how do you learn, how do you yeah. shape yourself into mm-hmm. someone that you're really proud of? It's through, you know, through times where you're not proud of what you've done, but it's all what you had at the time. Yeah. And it breaks your heart to hurt people that you love, like you said, mm. but to be true to yourself, sometimes it's inevitable. But as you say, you know, you get better at being true to yourself yeah and and hopefully you don't need to learn those hard lessons twice yes yes like Mm. really um really learn from that Mm. and so that when a similar or when a circumstance arises you don't choose that same um paradigm you don't let Mm. a paradigm that is part of you always be part of you you can change and i learned that i learned that i can reinvent myself Absolutely. Um, and I'm learning that I don't need to do that at the to the detriment of others now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, time is a great healer and also a great teacher. Mm. There was one more question I wanted to ask, and it may be a quick answer. Um, are you as sensuous as the plants that you find so sensuous? <laughs> Of course I am. <laughs> I'm a natural being. I mean, <laughs> or you might, are you in touch with it? Like, yeah, like we're all. Oh uh, well, I'm. I'm trying every day. I'm trying. I'm very trying. <laughs> <laughs> I. I. Um. Yes, I am. I. I. 
would like to be more sensuous and more in touch with that sensual side because that's it's so delightful and it doesn't take from anyone it's not hurting anyone or anything you know it's just loving your own natural system i mean god i look at orchids enough down the microscope and i see so many correlations with the natural form of these plants you know you look at your own your own body and there they are you know so yeah it could make you blush if i if i uh if i was prone to blushing <laughs> but i'm not <laughs> um and i i um you know that's where the humor comes in of course it's fun anything that's sort of sexy and luscious it's got to have fun with it so yeah i love to dance you know i love to kiss i i i um i love to be loved i love to give back and i love to sing about these things i love the breath involved in it i love that whole way that i feel myself in the world and even when i'm sad or upset about something i'm i know i'm truly alive and and i'm grateful for that i'm so i wonder at this life and you know i'm 55 now i i'm, I'm not holding back anymore no way i'm just letting it all rip and bring forward and synthesize as much as i can the the beauty that i feel i am inhabiting and part of and i'm i'm trying to shrug off those enculturated attitudes of that we have and especially women have of no you're not enough you're not good enough you can't do that you shouldn't do that you know nah nah give that away and and love what i have to give and develop what i have to give and um critique it and um finesse it so that when I put it out there as a, a public thing or a, a, an item of product, it's well thought out. It is embedded in a milieu, in a, in a, a story, you know, botanical art on walls. That's one of the oldest stories of humankind, you know, plants and animals on cave walls. That, I'm part of that story. I'm, I'm richly connected into it and I... I feel that. So I'm proud of what I'm doing and I really love what I'm doing and I'm surprised often by what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, there's other tangents. It's like, oh, can I, can I step sideways there or have I got enough on my plate? <laughs> and maybe I, I have a lot on my plate, but, you know, I constantly replenish it. I'm a massive gardener. I keep a huge garden and that's really, really replenishing for my spirit. I, um, I... I hold many people as friends and I I really care about them and I I try to be a good friend. Um and you know I I have two beautiful children who are out there in the world doing their beautiful thing and I have past lovers and present partner who I I want to do just the right thing by and you know, hold a space where we've, we can all be our best. So, you know, I'm just only going to be my best. <laughs> and that involves actually being a bit terrified by the journey sometimes and mm. keeping on doing it. Because the number of times I look back and go, oh, well, you just stepped into that one, didn't you? And there, look at you now. You know, all these other doors opened. Mm. So I'm learning much more about how to use my energy well, how to... Um, 
recognize that I'm in the zeitgeist. I'm right at the leading edge in some sometimes. Even though I'm at the end of the earth, I know that I'm not to falter, not to go slow, to keep on and um, and flourish. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for <sighs> for giving all of this beautiful um, experiential. I don't know. It's just you know the knowledge and the yeah your skills and experience and. Thank you, oh, Helen. Thank you so yeah. much. It's uh, it's been really lovely to sit here in your little portable recording studio with the birds and the bees and mm. and talk about what drives my passions. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> Going deep is a self-funded project by me, Helen Thomas. If you'd like to support the work I do, which is to have open, deep and authentic conversations, then please consider making a donation. You can reach me via my website, www.thewayfinder.com.au. Thank you so much for listening.